we are in the final week of a sermon series that is very loosely a discussion of, of church government. And, uh, and the reason that it's very loosely a, a discussion of church government is because um, after thinking about it long and hard and doing some research, I realized that very few of you were actually interested in church government, all right? So um, that's, see, it's funny. It just keeps getting, everybody laughs at it, you know? It's like the same joke over and over again. It's so funny. Anyway. So what I wanted to do was I wanted to end up talking about um, church government sort of by coming in the back door. And, and so essentially what we've been doing is we've been jumping around John chapter 10, where Jesus tells the, uh, the people he's speaking to, the disciples and the crowds, he says, I'm the good shepherd. And essentially, um, back you know, 2,000 years ago, people had a framework for what shepherds did. They, they protected the flock. They fed the flock. They led the flock around. In the New Testament, what we see is that whenever a church is planted, that the church planter, Paul typically, establishes what he calls shepherds. Or there's some other language he uses. He uses the term presbyteros, which means elders. He uses the term episkopos, which means the people that oversee the church. But again, um, he frequently uses this idea of shepherds because it was a metaphor that people back then would have understood. They would have understood shepherds lead and they feed and they protect, right? And so in the same way, the church government structure of Seven Hills Fellowship is governed by these people that we call elders or episkopos, um, overseers, or shepherds. And so we're going to be focusing on this metaphor of shepherds. We've been talking about it for the last two weeks. We talked about the ways in which... Um, the under shepherds of the good shepherd ultimately follow Jesus' example as they lead the flock. The under shepherds or elders, um, they follow Jesus' example as they feed the flock by teaching them the word of God. And then finally today, we're going to talk about how these under shepherds follow Jesus' example as they protect the flock. Let's take a moment and let's pray and then we will begin. Father, I thank you for this day. And as I look out at this room filled with people, I ask that, uh, that you would be here among us. Father, I ask that, uh, that no one would be able to leave this room this morning without having had an encounter with you, the living God. Father, I pray that uh, you would send your Holy Spirit upon this room, that we might be convicted of sin, that we might be convicted of the ways in which we try to build our identity apart from you. I pray that we would be convicted of the ways in which we try to find our security in the things that you've created rather than trying to find our security in you. Father, I pray that you would do that through the power of your spirit in us. I pray, Father, that you would take your word and that you would sink it um, through our ears and down through our brains all the way down into our hearts so that your word and your spirit change who we are from the inside out. Father, it's in uh, the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we pray all of these things today. Amen. So Frank Hall was a, an assistant football coach at a high school named Shadron High School just outside of Cleveland, Ohio. That's a picture of him. And if you can, can't guess by his face, his body actually matches his face. He's six foot one and weighs 350 pounds, right? And so I don't care if you're in South Carolina and you're a football coach or you're in Ohio and a football coach. That's what football coaches look like, right? They're these, you know, big guys. And so he's this guy, Frank Hall, fantastic guy, just a fantastic fellow. Uh, he runs the FCA at Shadron High School. And so he loves kids. He loves pouring his life into kids. Uh, his wife, who's a, a wonderful lady, she's a social worker. 
And they love on kids together. In fact, they have four adopted children that, that, that essentially they adopted out of the, uh, the system there in Ohio. And they love these kids and they try to serve these four boys that they've adopted into their home. Not only does he uh, run FCA at Shadron High School, but uh, they, they actually didn't have a job at the high school for him in his area of specialty, which was social studies. And so he took a job there at Shadron High School as uh, the lunchroom monitor and as a study hall teacher, right? Not exactly what he signed up to do or really dreamed of doing, but for him it was all about being with these kids and loving on these kids. In fact, he has a, a saying that uh, he said, and I'm going to read this really quickly. When interviewed about his job and, on, and, and loving on these kids, it says, Hall summarizes his coaching code and his parenting code and his teaching code, being with these kids in two sentences. And this is what he says. Every kid is someone's pride and joy. Every kid is someone's pride and joy or wants to be someone's pride or joy. He goes on to say, I just keep thinking, how would I want my kid to be treated? And then I treat them that way. I mean, you can just tell that he just loves these kids. He, he just loves them and wants to care for them. And if he sees them as somebody else's pride and joy, or at least desiring to be somebody else's pride and joy, it just, he exudes it around the school. And, and the kids at the school love him because they know that, uh, that he loves them. And he treats them with respect and dignity and he's an encourager. It's a great picture. Well, on the morning of February 27, 2012, Frank Hall was in the lunchroom, right, serving as the lunchroom monitor and the, the room was packed with kids waiting to go to class and as he sat there talking with some kids he heard gunshots and when he heard these gunshots he turned around and he looked across the room and uh, there was a, a young boy 17 year old tj lane who had a white t-shirt on that said killer and he had a gun and he was shooting and of course in that lunchroom kids were you know, flying and running. It was utter chaos. They were, they were running for the nearest uh, exits. They were diving behind tables. They were all running away, obviously, from the shooter. But among, in the midst of this crazy scene of chaos where everyone is flying away from this shooter, this young man, T.J. Lane, there was one person who was running against the flow of traffic, and it was Frank Hall. And so while everyone else was running away, running through the doors, running through the exits, he ran towards T.J. Lane, and he was yelling, stop, stop. And T.J. Lane turned as Frank Hall was running to him, and he shot towards him a couple times. Frank Hall dove behind a Pepsi machine, and T.J. Lane turned around and continued shooting some more. Frank Hall peeked out from behind the Pepsi machine just in time to see the school secretary, a 51-year-old lady named Jen Spinzi. And as she stepped out of the office, he said that T.J. Lane lowered his gun and began to point it at her. And as soon as he saw the gun go down, he jumped out from behind the Pepsi machine, and he ran towards T.J. Lanigan, shouting at him, trying to distract his attention away from the secretary. T.J. Lane turned and shot a couple more times. Frank Hall dove out of the way again, and T.J. Lane began shooting again. When Frank Hall saw that he was shooting again, heard the gunfire, he again got up and ran towards T.J., at which point in time T.J. took off and ran out of the cafeteria down the hall. Frank Hall chased him, chased him all the way out of the doors that led out into the parking lot, at which point Frank Hall lost him and, and TJ made his way through the parking lot. At that point in time, Frank Hall turned around in order to be with some of the students who had been injured. And I'm not going to tell you the entire story of, of how he spent um, some of those uh, final moments with those kids, but just suffice to say it was a moving, moving time. 
And what is interesting in this story is afterwards they, uh, they actually found T.J. Lane. They found him out in the woods, a ways away from the school, shivering in the cold and wet with nothing but this T-shirt on. And they asked him, they said, uh, why did you run away? Why did you leave the building? And T.J.'s only saying was, he said this, because Coach Hall was chasing me. This is this, I love this. He was chasing me. This guy kept pursuing me. It was interesting. And afterwards, they asked Frank Hall, they said, hey, we know you go through all this protocol for what to do in, you know, in these instances, in these cir- circumstances and situations. Was this part of the protocol? Were you supposed to run towards him? And, and Frank Hall said, no, actually, that, that was not part of the protocol. He said, my instinct just took over, and I wanted to protect those kids, right? It's a really amazing story of um, heroism, right? And uh, amazing story of going against the protocol in order to, to protect someone who needed to be protected, to defend someone who needed to be defended in order to care for somebody who no one else was able to care for, right? Jesus talks about himself as the good shepherd. He talks about himself as the good shepherd being willing and able to protect the sheep, even willing to lay down his life in order to save them from the wolves that are coming. John chapter 10 verses 115 through 15 tells us and gives us the story that Jesus Gives us. It's a metaphor that's kind of mixed up a little bit, but essentially the point is clear. I'm going to read verses 1 through 15, and we'll see how Jesus talks about a good shepherd and how that good shepherd protect, protects his sheep even at his own expense. Verse 1 I tell you the truth, the man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of his sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, I'm the gate for the sheep. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming And leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. So this passage is about a lot of different things. It's a proof text for a lot of different things. But one of the things that stands out in this passage very clearly is that Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, and I'm going to do whatever it takes to protect my sheep, to protect my flock. Part of what we can take away from this, and we're going to see it up on the screen, is the other thing we see in this is that we see that bad shepherds protect themselves at the expense of the sheep, and that good shepherds protect the sheep at their own expense. Bad shepherds protect themselves at the expense of the sheep, but good shepherds protect themselves, protect the sheep at their own expense. Let's, let's start with the first half of that phrase, that bad shepherds protect themselves at the expense of the sheep. And look at verse 12. Verse 12, Jesus says this, He who's a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming, leaves the sheep, and flees, and the wolf snatches 
them and scatters them. And again, in the context of John chapter 10, what we see here is in John chapter 9, Jesus has healed the man born blind, right? And he does it on the Sabbath. The Pharisees are angry. And they're angry not only because Jesus healed them on the Sabbath, but they're angry because Jesus is becoming popular. And as he's becoming more popular, they're becoming less popular. As he's becoming more influential, they're becoming less influential. As he's becoming more powerful, they're becoming less powerful. And what we see here in John chapter 10 is basically what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, look, you need to watch out for these bad shepherds because there are bad shepherds out there that are much more concerned with protecting their power, their reputation, and their control than they are about actually protecting the sheep or the people who they are intended to protect. Does that make sense? Now, usually at a this point in the sermon, I would sort of point us towards some illustration of how there's a, you know, some sort of leader out there who was supposed to protect the people under his watch, but instead protected himself. Instead of actually using another illustration from somewhere in culture today, I'm going to actually bring us right back to Scripture. I'm going to take us right back to Jesus. We're going to look at John chapter 8, and we're going to take a look at how, how these bad shepherds do, in fact, protect themselves at the expense of the very sheep they're supposed to protect. This is John chapter 8, 1 through 6. The story... Uh, is essentially called or typically called the woman caught in adultery. This is during the Feast of Tabernacles. So there are three big feasts that happen where everybody floods into Jerusalem. And a lot of times during Jerusalem, over it's, it basically was about 300,000 people ordinarily. But during these feasts, about over a million people would come in. So it was crowded, right? And so it's during the Feast of the Tabernacles. Look at verse 1. It says, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. He had been teaching in the temple, Right? He left the temple because the Pharisees were unhappy with him. He went to the Mount of Olives and then says, verse 2, early in the morning, he came again to the temple. And listen to this phrase, all the people came to him. Right? You can see all of a sudden why the Pharisees are concerned about losing power, about losing influence, about losing their position with these people. Because it says that as soon as Jesus shows up in the temple in the morning, it says everybody, all the people came to him. You can just imagine he's on one side and everybody's around him. And then the Pharisees are standing over there and they're like, obviously something's happening here. It says he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees into the midst of all of this brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, right? Again, the temple, the courts of the temple would have been packed with people from all over Israel, coming to celebrate this Feast of Tabernacles. And so this, this sort of throng, this mob of people is listening to Jesus uh, as he teaches. And you can kind of you know, picture the Pharisees worming their way through the crowd, making their way up front with this woman. And this woman, you can just imagine her head is downcast. She's looking at the ground. She's ashamed. She's humiliated. And the reason that she's ashamed and humiliated is that it becomes very clear very quickly that uh, this woman had been caught in the act of adultery, and the Pharisees are using this as an opportunity to try to lessen Jesus' influence and to increase their own. And if the cost is her humiliation and her shame, so be it. Verse 4, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses... Uh, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Deuteronomy 22 did actually command that you would put somebody who committed adultery to death. It was that serious of a sin. But it said in Deuteronomy 22, you're not just supposed to stone the woman who's caught in adultery. You're supposed to stone the man as well. Although for some reason in this situation, he's strangely and curiously absent. So they say, so what do you say to Jesus? This they said to, to test him. 
that they might have some charge to bring against him. And they really were putting him in a weird spot. The reason they were putting him in a weird spot is because only the Romans were allowed to enact this punishment of capital punishment. So if Jesus had actually said, yep, you got a, you got a stoner, then Jesus would have been in trouble with the Romans, right? Or if Jesus had said, no, 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 don't stone her, be merciful to her, then they could have accused him of not caring about the law of Moses. They were simply trying to trap Jesus, and they, again, were using this woman, her shame, her indignity, her humility, her, her humiliation as the price of their attempt to protect their own power, their attempt to protect their own position, to protect their own uh, credit with the people. She was just a pawn in their attempt to try and discredit Jesus and protect themselves. Now, here's why this is important. This is chapter 8 in John. We actually read about the Good Shepherd in John chapter 10, so it's probably not too long since these two events happened. And what Jesus is basically doing is he's saying, look, these, these men who are supposed to be protecting you, they're not protecting you. They're protecting themselves instead. And unfortunately, in our culture, in our world, there are way too many examples of people who are supposed to be protecting others and instead protect themselves at the expense of those other people. There are pastors who protect their own reputations, their own power, their own authority at the expense of the people they serve. I've used this illustration before, but I had an IRS agent come up to me one time at a wedding that I did. And uh, this IRS agent said, it's, you know, by the way, my job is to investigate televangelists. And he went on to tell me about this televangelist who had a, who had a gold-plated toilet. And, uh, and the point is, is what this guy was saying is there's all sorts of pastors out there, not just televangelists, but other pastors too, who use their position and their authority and their power in order to protect their own happiness or their own pleasure, but they do it at the expense of their own people. There was a church planter who shall remain nameless in another dimension, a thousand light years away, who one time said, he said, uh, the, the cost of growing to 5,000 members was that I had to sacrifice my first staff in order to do it. In other words, what he was saying is, I'm more than willing to sacrifice those people serving under me for the sake of growing this thing. And I think it's an example of an unhealthy uh, leader protecting himself at the expense of his people. We know that there are fathers who are charged with protecting their families. And instead of protecting their wives, and instead of protecting their children, they protect their own happiness at the expense of their wives, at the expense of their children. Sometimes they protect their happiness by running away with another woman. Sometimes they protect their happiness by simply withdrawing from the family dynamic. But there are unhealthy leaders, these shepherds who are supposed to protect their flock, but instead they protect their selves. We know that there are spouses that, that in the midst of a relationship, and marriage is really hard, it's really challenging, there are spouses who are so concerned about protecting their heart and not being vulnerable about their shame and their brokenness, the only way to protect their heart is to withdraw from their family, right? Dads do it, moms do it. In order to protect their heart from getting hurt, they just withdraw because it's too painful to be known. But in the process, they don't just damage their wife, they damage their children as well. Bad shepherds protect themselves at the expense of their sheep, at the expense of the very people that they're supposed to be protecting. Let's look at the second point that we see coming out on this, which is that good shepherds, on the other hand, protect the sheep precisely at their own expense. Jesus says this in, back in John chapter 10, verses 11 through 15. He says this, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, sells his golf clubs, 
watches less football on Saturday, fill in the blanks. Verse 12, he who's a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. It's this picture of destruction, this picture of mayhem because he leaves. Verse 13, he flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. We've already pointed out that bad shepherds protect themselves at the expense of the sheep. And in this case, those bad shepherds are these Pharisees, right, who are protecting their power and their control and their authority, their position. Here, Jesus points out what would have been obvious to his listeners, especially 2,000 years ago, that good shepherds defend the lives of their sheep even at the cost of their own life, right? We know that David defended David the, the shepherd, King David, defended his sheep basically from lions and from bears, we know that not only did he defend them from lions and bears, but we know that in the ancient Near East, there were also wolves. There were also leopards that would have preyed upon these flocks of sheep. And what his hearers, Jesus' hearers, would have understood is that a good shepherd stands in between those predators and his sheep, even if it costs him his life. Let's go back to John chapter 8. Remember, if you remember, we looked at John chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. It's the woman caught in adultery. Right, and, and we know that the Pharisees have dragged this woman through the crowd, and they've brought her up front. Her head is down. She's humiliated, right? She's probably completely embarrassed. She's prepared to be shunned, and they don't care, right? They're just willing to, uh, to increase their power at her expense. And the last thing that we saw is that they said, hey, Jesus, what should we do? You know, what do you think should happen to this lady? And it says that Jesus stoops down and begins to write in the sand, right, or in the, in the gravel there in the temple courts. And it says in verse 7, it says, and as they continued to ask him. So as he's kneeling there in the dust, he's writing something, right, with a stick or with his finger, we don't know. And it says they continued to ask him. In other words, they're pestering him. You know, they're, they're wanting to, you know, to sort of make their point. Jesus, what should we do? What should we do? And he's just sort of taking his time, and he's drawing there in the sand. It says that he stood up and he said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and he wrote on the ground. So it's this amazing picture. You know, they come to him. What should we do? He knows it's a trap. Jesus bends down and begins writing. They, they pester him and pester him. What should we do? He stands up and he very clearly says, all right, whoever's without sin, you can cast the first stone. And he bends back down and begins writing there in the sand. Now, here's what's interesting. It's nowhere in Scripture or even in church history is it recorded what it was that Jesus was writing. And so we don't know. It's a mystery, right? Which is great. I love that, actually. Some commentators have speculated that maybe what Jesus was writing in the sand was the Ten Commandments. And so maybe part of what he was doing is, all right, here's the Ten Commandments. If you haven't broken any of these, then feel free. Go ahead. Throw a rock, right? And they would have known, yeah, we, we have broken those. Doesn't tell us. Some commentators have said that what Jesus may have been doing is he may have been doodling in the sand, doing nothing, but just trying to buy time in order to cause them to think about this whole situation that they were engaged in. Again, we're not told. We do have a little bit of a clue, though, which I'd like to bring to your attention. It's this. Is that the word for write, as he was writing in the sand, the typical word in Greek they would have used was graphene, like graphite in a pencil, right? It just means to write very simply. But that's not the word that's used in this passage. The word that is used in this passage is kata graphene, which means to write against, 
to write against. In other words, it's the kind of thing that a lawyer would do. A lawyer would say, I'm going to write up charges against someone. And so it's possible, although again, we don't know, that what Jesus was doing is maybe Jesus was writing something against the person who was supposed to be the witness bringing the charges against this woman. We don't know. But whatever Jesus was writing in the sand there, maybe he was writing, uh, I remember, or, or if I were to look at your internet history seven weeks ago, what would I find? Or maybe what Jesus was writing was, when you were in Atlanta and you were all by yourself, I saw what you did. Whatever Jesus was cartographing, whatever he was writing in the sand, either way, what ends up happening is that when he invites the first witness to come, no one steps forward. No one takes him up on his invitation to throw that first stone. In fact, it says this, verse 9, But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. I don't know what he wrote, but whatever it was, it was good enough to make all of those accusers walk away one by one. We can only guess why the older ones left first, but whatever the reason, they left the woman there all by herself with Jesus in the middle of this throng, in the middle of this crowd. What we see here is Jesus protecting this woman, right? What's interesting is notice the fact that he says to her at the end, he says, now go and sin no more. In other words, Jesus wasn't saying that she wasn't guilty. In fact, he probably was saying that she actually was guilty and that she actually did deserve judgment. And if that's the case, then Jesus probably saved her life. And with the utmost care and the utmost compassion, with the utmost dignity, Jesus protected this woman from the wolves who would have spent her life in order to protect theirs. Does that make sense? It's a great picture. Right? I mean, how in the world would you handle such a tricky, tricky situation? And Jesus does it with grace, and he does it with dignity as he protects this woman. Here at Seven Hills Fellowship, we have elders and pastors. The elders of Seven Hills Fellowship are called to do any number of things. They're called to feed or teach the people the word of God. They're to lead and to guide the church. But maybe most compellingly, what elders are supposed to do is they're supposed to protect the flock under their care. They're in order, their, their job is to take care of you, to protect you from wolves, right? And sometimes not only to protect you from things outside of you, but things inside of you, to protect you from legalism. Legalism is this idea that you can save yourself. It's this idea that you go, I'm going to make myself right before you, God, by being really, really good, by doing lots of good things, or by not doing too many bad things, or by doing lots of volunteerism. And these elders need to protect you from that by saying, look, the Bible's very clear that the only way that you're saved isn't by your righteousness, but it's the righteousness of this good shepherd. These elders are supposed to, t- to protect you from false teaching. Uh, they're supposed to protect the church from division, from gossip, and from slander, even though it costs them their lives. Maybe not physically, but maybe socially, maybe financially, maybe there are other ways in which it costs them. Fathers in this church... You are called to lay down your life for your sheep. Mothers, you're called to lay down your life for your sheep. College students, you're called to lay down your life for the people that God brings into your life that you're called to protect as well. And what Jesus is saying here is that good shepherds protect their sheep, the sheep under their care, even when it costs them. Does that make sense? It's, you know... I guess part of what I would say here is we live in a culture where there's a lot of talk 
And again, counselors, please forgive me. If I say something wrong here, it just means you get more business. Um, But we live in a culture where 99% of the time you're hearing messages about self-care and about self-preservation and about, you know, uh, your need to flourish individually and to protect yourself. And I think that all that stuff is actually true. But, But the problem is when you hear 99 of those statements and then you only hear one statement about self-sacrifice, it affects the way that we live, it affects the way we think, it affects what we expect from others and what we expect from ourselves. And so what I'm telling you is that what Jesus talked about all the time was this picture of self-sacrifice, of laying down your life for the sake of other people. Let me stop here for a second. And let me say the most interesting thing in this passage is something we haven't talked about yet. And it's this. The most interesting thing in this passage is what Jesus says after everyone has left. He says this. Again, you can just imagine this woman, her head is down. Uh, she's probably got tears running down her face, either because she's scared to death of dying, being stoned, or maybe she's scared to death of this public sin being thrown out in front of everyone. Whatever the case may be, she's there. And Jesus says, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. Now, here's why this is the most interesting thing. Because of all the people present that day in the temple courts, the crowd, the Pharisees, the disciples, the Roman centurions that surely would have been around, there was only one person in that courtyard that day that had the right to condemn that woman, right? And it was Jesus. It was God who had come in the flesh. I mean, only God has the right to condemn a human being, right? Only God has that right. And here, Jesus basically says, neither do I condemn you. How could Jesus not judge her? Why didn't he? The reason why he didn't condemn her is because, as he would say several days later, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The expense of forgiving this woman, the expense of not condemning this woman was the cost of his own life on the cross. John three seventeen. earlier in this book of John, John tells us this. He says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Right? Jesus came to protect sinners. He came to protect broken people. He came to protect adulterous women. Jesus even came to protect that crowd. Jesus even desired to protect those people who would sacrifice her in order to protect themselves. We do all of these things ourselves. This morning, we have the opportunity to experience this protection that we are offered in Jesus, right? This morning, we're celebrating the Lord's Supper on tables behind this front section on my right and on my left are tables with bread and wine and bread and grape juice. In uh, the, the top, we have bread and grape juice. And one of the things that you need to understand is that what this meal represents is that for those people who trust in Christ alone for their salvation, that there is now no condemnation for you. If you trust in Jesus as your Savior, then Jesus can say to you, neither do I condemn you. You might believe that you need to be condemned or you ought to be condemned because of whatever you did or you did it too many times or whatever it was, it was just too bad. But in this meal of the Lord's Supper, Jesus declares to you, neither do I condemn you if you trust in me. This meal, however, 
is actually not for some people. And the people it's not for are for people who haven't yet come to the point of trusting in Jesus alone for their salvation. But it's for, for those people who have. And so I'm going to read the words of institution. And as I read these words of institution, I want you to, to sit back and think about how, if you trust in Jesus alone for your, your salvation, that this, this phrase, this statement, this truth, neither do I condemn you, can wash over you. Listen to the words of 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you sent your son Jesus to protect us from wolves, from Satan. But Father, you sent your son Jesus to protect us from ourselves as well. Father, you sent your son Jesus to protect us from condemnation, so much so that, that in your word you can say that there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in your Son. And so, Father, I pray that as we gather here together this day and as we, as we think about the ways in which we have protected ourselves at the expense of others, that we would remember that your Son Jesus did exactly the opposite and that he sought to protect us even at his own expense. Father, I pray that as we take this meal today, that we would remember that those of us who trust in Christ as our Savior, that it's not simply that we are no longer condemned, but even that you have declared us righteous before you, because we are now hidden in your Son, Jesus Christ. And so, Father, it's in his name that we pray today, and it's in his name that we prepare to take the Lord's Supper today. Amen.